Let's go back to sixth period, or as my high school called it for, I don't know why, mod. I don't know what mod means. Um, sixth period, it's right after lunch. You've just finished devouring that turkey sandwich, chewy granola bar, and apple that your mom packed you in a brown paper bag. You scurry down the dimly lit hallway to retrieve your books from your locker and then proceed to Mrs. Terrazini's English class. Well, the absence of air conditioning heightens your post-lunch drowsy feeling as you place the heavily used English textbook on your desk, which is not much of a desk. It's more of a chair scantily welded to a table that's covered in pencil graffiti. So with all that set, the bell rings, the period or the mod begins, and you brace yourself for another fun-filled English class. So after introductory formalities, Mrs. Terrazini instructs the class to turn in their textbooks to some random short story. The class is supposed to read in silence, and then the teacher will bark out questions about a bunch of fancy concepts that to you seem to suck out the life of short stories. What is the setting? What does the rising action happen? What's the climax? What's the resolution? Who are the characters? Well, there's a collective non-response from the room. Everyone seems to be waiting for someone else to answer, which forces Mrs. Terrazini's hand to just call on someone. And my friend, poor guy, he was just randomly called up to the board, asked to diagram the whole plot structure, and he just froze. Well, one of Mrs. Terrazini's questions relates not just to who are the characters, but what kind of characters are they? Maybe you remember these. There is the protagonist. It's the main character. Most of the action revolves around him or her. There's the antagonist, the person who opposes the protagonist, or sometimes it's called the foil, enhances the character of the protagonist. There are stock characters. These characters are instantly recognizable from story to story. And there's even more. And you get to label all these after you read a short story. How fun. <laughs> I think the character, though, that most people find the deepest connection with are round and dynamic characters. Now, these characters are round because they're fully orbed. That means the story tells us a lot about them. We know a lot of facts about them. They're dynamic because from beginning to end, they've changed in some major way. So if an easy way to identify these, uh, if you are familiar with Disney characters, Disney characters fit these molds really easily. Uh, so Simba from The Lion King is the protagonist, and he is a round, dynamic character. We know a lot about him, and he changes from beginning to end. How do dynamic characters change, though? How do they transform? Well, normally, it's because of the events that they go through. There's something about their journey that teaches them a lesson or shows them a perspective they didn't have or gives them traits that they didn't have before. If there was ever a round and dynamic character in the Bible, particularly in the book of Genesis, it's Jacob. From beginning to end, 
his story, we see how much he changes. Last week, we saw Jacob's beginnings. His beginnings as a pathological liar who used his own schemes to seek God's promises. But today, we'll look at the rest of his story and see how much God changed him. And so the rest of Jacob's story spans from Genesis chapter 28 to chapter 36. And we're going to look at the whole thing. I know, it's a lot to chew. But I think it'll be helpful in seeing God's work in Jacob throughout his whole life. And at the same time, keeping an eye on the bigger story of Genesis, like we've been trying to do. So looking at these chapters should remind us that Jacob's story should be a lot like our story. Because all Christians should be dynamic characters. They should have undergone some kind of change. How? Well, that change begins by receiving Jesus' sinless life and substitutionary death through repentance and faith. And at that point, the Holy Spirit gives us new hearts, and we continue to change as God works in us in various ways. A lot like Jacob, often, working in us through many dangers, toils, and snares. So that brings us to what is the main point of Genesis chapter 28 to 36. The main takeaway we should get, the main thing that should come up throughout this text and throughout the sermon. And that is God transforms the people he saves. God transforms the people he saves. We're on our 10th stop of our driving tour of Genesis. And no, sorry, we are not stopping at the world's largest ball of twine. This road ahead today is we'll start it by looking at what's behind, seeing where we've been and what that tells us about what lies ahead. And then we'll notice the major parts of Jacob's story. We're going to see kind of the general flow of his life from chapters 28 to 36. And then we'll conclude our stop with why and how God works both in Jacob and how he works in us. So that's kind of the destination, that's the GPS for what lies ahead. And as always, we do this with God's help. Humbly receiving his word, faithfully striving to apply his word to our lives and seeking to bring glory to Christ who is at the center of God's word. So let's start with where we've been. Genesis is the story of beginnings. Its opening words are literally in the beginning. In the beginning what? In the beginning, God. God created everything. The self-existent, perfect God created everything, including people, as a display of his glory. And at the beginning of the earth, everything was good. Not just good, God calls it very good. But something happens. The people God created rejected their creator and placed themselves on the throne. And so the story of Genesis, and actually kind of the whole Bible, is about how God brings his people back to Eden. 
back to that very good place. How God reestablishes his kingdom on earth. So on the road so far, there are things when we look out the window that we keep on seeing. We keep seeing people's rebellion against God. The Bible calls this sin. We keep on seeing God's holiness, how God is separate, how God is above and unique above us. And God displays his holiness in judging that rebellion, in judging sin. As we look out the window, we keep on seeing God's grace, his mercy, in promising to restore people to himself. As we look out the window, we'll notice too, a lot, that God calls the people he saves to trust him, to obey him, in light of the promise he's made to them. So eventually, as the story goes, God promised to Abraham that it's in him that people from all nations will be blessed. Last week, that blessing of Abraham gets passed down to his son, Isaac. And this week, that blessing gets passed down to Jacob. Well, there seems to be a lot of things that keep God's promises from happening. We see barrenness, that people can't have children. We see that there's famine. We see that there are enemies in the land. You know what the biggest obstacle to God's promises coming about? It's actually the stubbornness and the disobedience of God's people. So God is committed to fulfilling his promise, but he will work trust and obedience with his covenant partner. We see how he works in Abraham. We see how he works in Isaac. And now, today, we see how he works in Jacob. So that's where we've been. That's kind of the road that lies behind. Hopefully that clarifies where we're going. If you haven't turned in the Bible yet, go ahead and take a copy of the Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 28. If you're using a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that will be on page 22. Genesis chapter 28. So if we think of Jacob's life as a big mural, you know, his life after the beginning, which we looked at last week, you could see that mural in four big strokes. And that, that mural kind of paints a picture of a boomerang. You remember boomerangs? I never could get boomerangs to work. You're supposed to throw it out. It goes, and it stays someplace for a little bit, and then it comes back. Think of Jacob's life as kind of a boomerang, those four strokes of his life. So the first stroke is that Jacob is sent out from home. We see that in chapter 28. He kind of tossed the boomerang. The second stroke is Jacob's time in exile, his time away from home. That's, uh, we see his journey there, and we see that he's alone, away from home, in chapters 29 to 30. And then the third stroke is Jacob's way back. Jacob is sent home. And we see his journey back in chapters 31 to 34. And then that fourth stroke is when we catch the boomerang again. Jacob's back home, and that's described in chapters 35 to 36. So those are the four big strokes, and there are lots of little strokes in between the big strokes. Okay, so that's a good way of thinking about the flow of Jacob's life. So let's look at each of those strokes. Jacob is first sent out. 
Jacob sent out. Per usual, um, it'll be really helpful for you to follow along with a Bible if you have one. Um, so as we begin with the first stroke, remember that we left Jacob off seeing his dysfunctional family. We saw Jacob and Rebekah enacting a plan to deceive Isaac, who was blind. Deceiving a blind man. There's something really low about that. They sought to deceive Isaac so that Jacob could get his older brother Esau his blessing. And the plan works. And Esau is really ticked. You can't actually blame him. Esau is seeking his younger brother's life. So chapter 28 opens up. Jacob has to flee. Isaac, his dad, sends him away. He does this in part so that he can escape from Esau, but he also does it so that he can get a good wife. And interesting to note that Isaac's dad, Abraham, went to greater lengths to secure a good wife for him. Isaac doesn't do the same thing for Jacob. So you keep on going. You notice verses 6 to 9. Esau hears about Isaac's wish for Jacob to take other wives. Um, and he responds by just kind of adding more wives instead of repenting from the bad wives he married. And then we see Jacob's journey there beginning in verse 10. And on the way, he has a dream. He has a dream of God reaching down to him. And it's interesting. It's, you remember the Tower of Babel? Was the man, people are trying to reach their way up to God. But here, Jacob's dream is God reaching down to him. Well, that's always how it works. We never reach our way up to God. God has to reach down to us. And Jacob is stunned by this. Look at verse 17. It says, How awesome is this place! a place he called Bethel, the house of God. And from then on, he devotes himself to living with Yahweh as his God. That transformation, that change, it's beginning. But it's not yet complete. So then we see the second big stroke of Jacob's life, Jacob in exile. He arrives at his destination away from home in chapter 29. And like his granddad Abraham's servant, found his dad's Isaac, a wife, who is Rebecca, Jacob finds Rachel at a well. We've seen this scene before. So Jacob meets her, and it says he rolled away the stone that was covering a well. And it would have taken several guys to do something like this. So Jacob's a pretty strong guy. And I would assume that Rachel was probably impressed with his strength. And then it says that Jacob kissed her, and then he cried. Verse 11. Might not be a good strategy for today, but I guess it works for Jacob. We find that Rachel is Jacob's cousin, the daughter of Laban, uh, Rebekah's brother. Uh, and apparently this was acceptable, um, or at least not explicitly forbidden. So Uncle Laban is just as tricky and devious as his nephew Jacob, so much so that he connives a way to get Jacob to stay in his house for 20 years. Imagine living with your in-laws for 20 years. Now, you may know the story. Jacob is smitten by Rachel, and he tells his uncle Laban that he'll work for him for seven years in order to marry her. You talk about commitment. Working for seven years 
just to marry someone. But Rachel has an older sister, Leah, who didn't have any real prospects for a husband at the time. And Laban tricks Jacob into marrying Leah instead by basically keeping Leah hidden in the dark. Kind of like what Jacob did to his dad, Isaac. God's letting Jacob reap what he sowed. So Jacob's fooled, and he has to work another seven years to marry Rachel. And then they live happily ever after. Well, no, not exactly. The last part of chapter 29 and the first half of chapter 30 tell us about Jacob's household and his kids. Jacob ends up having 12 sons in all. He has some by Leah, some by concubines, and some by Rachel. These 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So Leah has sons first, and Leah wasn't loved very much, and God had mercy on her. And we even see God's mercy on her, and that even though she was mistreated, one of her sons was Judah. And it's through Judah that the Messiah would come. It's through Judah that Jesus would come. So this is mercy even for the wife who wasn't wanted. But it takes Rachel a long time to have children. But eventually God answers her prayer and gives her a child, first with Joseph and then later with Benjamin. So this is Jacob's time in exile. And his time in exile at his uncle's house ends with him securing a bunch of wealth. And it's a bit of a strange story. You look at chapter 30, at verse 25 and following. Jacob makes this agreement with his uncle that he would be allowed to take the black and striped goats from his flock. So Laban tells all of his sons to take all these sheep away. And, but Jacob does some kind of strange selective breeding process so that there will be a bunch of striped and black goats for himself. And the plan works. Neither Laban nor Jacob is really honest here, but Jacob still ends up with a large amount of sheep. And chapter 31, verse 41, says that it took six years for this to happen. So Jacob's in exile. He's away from home 20 years. And now that boomerang is starting to come back. That third big stroke in the mural of Jacob's life. Jacob sent back. Jacob has a big flock. He has all his kids. And then at the beginning of chapter 31, God tells him to go. To leave Laban's house and return to the land of his father. That's the third big stroke in Jacob's life. And there are a few things that happen along the way. Chapter 31, Laban doesn't like that his nephew who made him a bunch of money is now leaving him. And apparently his nephew also took his household gods, which actually Jacob's wife Rachel did, which he didn't know. So Laban catches up to Jacob and his gang. And he see, and, but Jacob replies that he's done nothing but good for Laban. And eventually they basically call it even. Jacob is sent on his way. He continues home, but there's another detour. Before returning home, Jacob must confront his past. He must confront his past with his family. And he must confront his future with God. 
So in chapter 32, Jacob learns that his travels will bring him near his brother, Esau. And when he learns of this, he panics. And then he prays. And on the same night he learns of this, he goes through this wrestling match. And it's a wrestling match with God. It's crazy. And after this, God renames him Israel. And God leaves Jacob with a limp. But then Jacob reunites with his brother in chapter 33. While they don't spend the rest of their life as best friends, there's no more bad blood between Esau and Jacob. Taylor Swift would be proud. No more bad blood. But Jacob's way back home. There's still another detour. Jacob arrives in this city called Shechem at the end of chapter 33. Shechem is in Canaan. It's part of the land of promise. And it's at Shechem that Jacob builds an altar to the Lord and he purchases some land for himself. But it's tough to tell whether or not Jacob should have stopped here. But definitely what he should have done is not let his family get so close to the bad people in Canaan. You know why? It cost him his daughter, Dina, to be raped. And then two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, exacted revenge by killing all of the men of the town. This is a devastating story, a blemish on what should have been a good return home. That boomerang keeps coming back, though. Onward, Jacob goes. And that last big stroke is Jacob is back home. God tells Jacob to keep going toward Bethel. And Jacob and his gang arrive there in chapter 35. His return is a time of worship. It's a time of receiving God's protection. It's a time of transition. We see Rachel, Jacob's wife. She dies in childbirth. Isaac, Jacob's father, also dies. And now the family blessing is truly and fully Jacob's. And then we get final details about his brother Esau. In chapter 36, so that the stage is set for how the blessing of Abraham will go from Jacob to Jacob's sons to close out Genesis. So there it is, a very thumbnail sketch of the mural of Jacob's life. So we've seen the different parts, seen kind of how they fit together with the bigger story. But what does it all mean? Why did God work in Jacob, and how did God work in Jacob? Why does God work in Jacob? You want the short answer? It's because Jacob wasn't where he needed to be. When we left him last week, he was nothing but a mama's boy who will do anything to get his own way. Jacob's issue is the object of his trust. He trusts in his own cleverness, not God. Jacob doesn't hate sin. He actually thinks sin is a useful tool to advance himself. Jacob was ensnared in the trap of relying on himself. He was guilty of the warning of Romans 12.3, of thinking higher of himself than he ought. 
So Jacob has to go through change. And even in the midst of this change, Jacob still struggles with the sin of self-reliance. You comb back through the story. When Jacob set out to go find a wife, there's something that's noticeably absent. Prayer. He doesn't pray. You compare it to his grandfather's servant who went to find Isaac a wife in chapter 24. Before that servant went, he prayed for the Lord to guide him. And then when God answered his prayer, he praised God for answering it. Jacob doesn't do either of these things. He's self-reliant. And that's largely why 20 years of his life were thrown away at his uncle's house. So, a bit of a side note. When you regularly don't pray, you are communicating to God that you're fine on your own and that you don't really need to depend on him. And it's often the case that our self-reliance is so deep-seated that it can kind of become our default posture. So that it's not even, well, I don't feel like or want to pray. It's that I don't even think about praying. That's how self-reliant I can be. Not that I just refuse to pray. I don't even think. It's not even a category. So, friends, a healthy prayer life begins with a heart that wants to depend on God. That desire, that's way more important than being eloquent. That's way more important than praying long prayers. It's a heart that desires to depend on God. But it's not just in searching for a wife that Jacob struggles with the sin of relying only on himself. You see in chapter 30, you look at verses 37 and following. He dabbles in some kind of superstition so that he can increase his flock. Again, there's no pause to ask God for guidance. He figures he can handle it on his own. Then you can look also at chapter 34. Jacob's passive. He opens up the door that causes horrible things to happen to his family and the town that he's in. So it's clear, reading this story, Jacob's like us. He's a piece of work. And Jacob must come to grips with his own weakness. He's got to stop trusting himself and trust only in God. God's given promises to Jacob. It doesn't mean Jacob gets to do whatever he wants. He must respond to God with faith, with reliance. And that'll show itself in obedience. So that's the why. Why does God change Jacob? Because Jacob needs change. How does God do it, though? Well, he does it through difficult events in Jacob's life. You look at two really big ones. His time in his uncle's house and that wrestling match he has with God. Before he went to his uncle's house, God met Jacob in a dream at Bethel, and he told the Lord that the Lord will be his God. Unlike what he said in chapter 27 when he said to Isaac, Isaac, I know God is your God. He doesn't say God is his God. But even after Bethel, even after he says the Lord is his God, his lesson's not learned yet. If Jacob is going to learn to stop relying on himself, then he had to be at the receiving end of his own schemes. He had to learn to take it like he dished it out. 
No, it's funny, um, speaking of my dad earlier, uh, my dad's doctor, um, who performed the, his knee surgery, actually got knee surgery himself a couple years ago. Uh, and the nurse was, said, like, before that, like, he was really not understanding at all with his patients. But after his knee surgery, all of a sudden, this is a man of compassion. But eventually, she said it wore off after a year, and she'll remind him every now and then, remember that you, ha you went through this too. Have a little bit of compassion. Jacob receives what he previously dished out. His uncle outwitted him, trapped him for 20 years. The deceiver got beat at his game. And even after this, though, Jacob's lesson's not quite learned. He makes it out of his uncle's house, but he wasn't out of the woods yet. He's on his way home. And he's approaching the place where he knows his brother lives. So he sends messengers to his brother Esau. Says, hey, are, are, are we good? I'll, I'll give you some stuff. Here's an olive branch. I'm sorry. The messengers come back that Esau doesn't say anything. All they tell him is that Esau's coming toward him, and he's got 400 dudes with him. Naturally, Jacob's terrified. Doesn't know what to do. He's in a panic. At this moment, Jacob's back is against the wall, and he knew that while he could plan for his brother's arrival, this time, his ability to get out of things, his ability to scheme, could not guarantee his safety in this moment. This is the moment when he begins to see that relying on himself might not be the best idea. And he does what he failed to do when he went to search for a wife. He prays. If you look at chapter 32, verses 10 to 12, you want to see a model prayer of being dependent on God. This is one. Jacob says this to the Lord. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. At this moment of weakness, and Jacob's realizing his own inability, he casts himself on God and God's promises. It's in this moment of Jacob's weakness that God comes to wrestle with him. So Jacob knew that on his own, he was utterly helpless. And without God's help, he would be utterly hopeless. So when God comes to wrestle with him, he refuses to let go. Verse 26, chapter 32, I will not let go until you bless me. And here is God bringing Jacob through pain, God weakening Jacob, but Jacob held on to God through all the pain. He submitted to God's purpose for him and stopped trusting in himself so much. 
So God had worked this change in Jacob so that he was no longer Jacob, but God renamed him Israel. So Jacob means deceiver, but Israel, it shows that his ambition, that Jacob's ambition to advance himself shifted to an ambition to hold on to God through anything. But even after this, even after Jacob's changed, even after Jacob becomes Israel, the old Jacob pops up again, pops up every now and then. But Jacob always has a reminder of his dependence on God. For the rest of his life, he walks with a limp. For the rest of his life, I would have to imagine that he needs a cane. He can't walk with his own strength. He literally, physically has to lean on something else. He's reminded of that all the time for the rest of his life. But what about us? Does God work in us? Yes, you bet. But why and how does he do it? Well, God's working in us because we aren't at that final goal yet. We aren't at his final goal for us. He's preparing us for that final state of what the Bible calls glorification, where we are renewed, where we become like Christ, and we see God face to face, where we are completely without sin and filled with complete praise and love for God, our creator, our sustainer, our savior, redeemer, and friend. That final goal is for us to rejoice and enjoy God forever. Friends, that's what we were made for. That's it. So you may ask, like the kids in the back seat, are we there yet? No, we're not. But the road to get to that final goal, it starts here. It starts here. It starts with what the Bible calls that narrow path. It starts with the gospel. Or the way back to God is not an eightfold path. It's not a 12-step program. It's a person. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, become man. It's Jesus who removes our sin from us because he carried the punishment for our sin on his cross. It's Jesus who gives us a new standing before God because when the Father looks at us, if we are in Christ, he doesn't see us anymore. He sees Christ in our place. So friend, this is the way. Are you on it? Have you forsaken trusting in yourself, forgetting what you want? Have you left behind relying on your works and deeds to earn you a place with God? Have you begun following Jesus, relying on him alone for forgiveness of your sin and a good standing before the Father? He is the way. That road starts now. And then when this happens, when you are on this way, that final goal of heaven, being without sin, filled completely with love for God to enjoy him forever, that final goal is guaranteed. It's secure. 
You are washed of your sin. You're declared righteous in God's sight. But while we're here, but while we're still here, that old Jacob comes back. You got to deal with that old Jacob still. It reappears time and again. So God prepares us for that final goal of being without sin and enjoying him forever, praising him completely. He prepares us for that by continuing to remove that old Jacob from us. How does he do this? How does he do this? He gives us a spirit. It's what he promised from ages past. God promised to bring a new covenant that would solve this old Jacob problem, that would solve the problem of stubbornness and self-reliance. In places like Ezekiel 36, he promised to send the Holy Spirit to give his people new hearts and new desires. Friends, that means when you come to Christ, there should be change. It's not going to happen all at once, but there should be change. If you have begun on the way of Christ, then it's like you've been reborn. If you believe in Christ, God has given the Holy Spirit to you who works in you to prepare you for that final goal. It's the Holy Spirit who points out our sin. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers us to overcome it. It's the Holy Spirit who reminds us of Christ and the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who illumines the Bible and roots it in our hearts. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us new desires to love and obey God. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the desire to love our neighbor, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So friends, God has placed us on the road to that final goal where we are without sin and enjoy him forever. First by forgiving us in Christ and then by sending us the Holy Spirit. That road's not going to be easy. Sometimes healing requires pain. We are in Christ and we have the Spirit of God, but we aren't home yet. So God will work to prepare us like he did with Jacob. He'll let us go through difficult things so that we can deal with our struggles with sin so that we can draw closer to him. A theologian, J.I. Packer, writes about this, of why God allows difficult things, trials, to happen to us. He says, Perhaps God means to strengthen us in patience, good humor, compassion, humility, or meekness by giving us some extra practice in exercising these graces under especially difficult circumstances. Perhaps God has new lessons in self-denial, in self-distrust to teach us. Perhaps God wishes to break us from complacency or unreality or undetected forms of pride and conceit. Perhaps God's purpose is simply to draw us closer to himself. For it is often the case that fellowship with God and Christian joy are the sweetest when the cross is the heaviest. So friend, whatever it is, 
remember that God did not spare his own son for you. There is no more punishment for those in Christ Jesus. Whatever it is you're going through, God is with you and hears your prayer. So hold on to Christ. Refuse to let go because he is not letting go. In Genesis 28 to 36, the weakness of Jacob, that inability, his stubbornness, the weakness of Jacob testifies to the strength of God. That's the perspective of 2 Corinthians. That when we are weak, God shows himself to be strong. God will keep his plan and his promises going. He'll overcome our sin. He'll save us from it and transform us so that we will one day be without it and enjoy him forever. That's the God we glorify. And so we can sing with confidence those two last great verses of how firm a foundation. When this we close. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you for reaching down to us in your Son to save us, to give us new life, to give us your Spirit. God, we ask that you would give us the strength in our weakness to hold on to you, to remember your goodness, to remember the gospel that you did not spare your own son for us. Remind us, Father, that there is no punishment for those in Christ Jesus, that you are bringing us home, that you are removing us from our sin and bringing us closer to you. Give us faith, Lord, to remember that, even in times we can't understand. And God, we praise you and we long for the day when we will be without sin, we will be without that old Jacob, and we will stand in you complete forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.